uh, is odd in at least one major respect. And that is that, what, there are only maybe three dozen songs that are sort of the part of the Christmas music canon. And they just get sung over and over and over again. What changes are the voices uh, that sing the songs and the sound that accompanies it. And sometimes hearing a particular song from a particular voice can be a definitive experience about that song. So, for instance, I will never hear God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen again and not think of the Michael McDonald version. And if you haven't heard it, don't look it up on your phone right now. You can wait till later. But Michael McDonald singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, Anita Baker singing Frosty the Snowman, amazing. And no one will ever be able to do Have a Merry Christmas, Have, a Merry, have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas like Judy Garland. Those are definitive performances for me. And yet, I can still listen to all of those songs sung by all sorts of other people and totally enjoy them. It is such an, a, a fascinating thing about Christmas music. The structures and the meanings of the songs are so beautiful in themselves that changing the voices simply enhances the experience. And we can hear them over and over again in these various voices and still enjoy it. That dynamic, however, does not work as well in the opposite direction. Many of those same musicians whose voices have so resoundingly enhanced an existing Christmas song have failed miserably when trying to create a new Christmas song. What they and we tend to discover is that it is most often not the singer who carries the Christmas song, it's the Christmas song who carries the singer. That idea has been working on my, in my mind as an intersection for our congregation at Christmas time with our scripture from this morning's text. Just as John the Baptist could have gotten so caught up in the popular response to his message that he could have taken the credit for himself, at this time of year in the Christian church in the U.S., it can be fairly easy to get so caught up in the, pop, the popular responses to this holiday that we don't lift up enough the true source of the joy and the hope. So John the Baptist's response to his questioners provides us with an important reminder of the truth. Just as John the Baptist acknowledges that he has a distinct voice, but he himself is not the message, so too the Christian church has a voice, especially at this time of year, 
but it isn't about the holiday in and of itself. Our message is about the person of Jesus Christ himself, that in his birth, God is with us, that in him, we have salvation and hope. The church has a voice, and its message is Jesus. Now, <clears throat> for a congregation of our size, although this morning is a wonderful turnout, but generally for a congregation of our size, we don't have to worry so much about our immense popularity going to our heads. For John the Baptist, it was a different matter. The pretext to our story this morning is that this man named John had been out in the desert the, uh, on the, by the Jordan River telling all people, all people, even those who were already a part of God's covenant people, Israel. John was out there in the desert telling all people that God was coming in a powerfully new way. And therefore, everyone needed to prepare themselves from the inside out to enter into a whole new realm of relationship with God. As a sign that a person was willing and wanting to get right with God, John said, come out to the river, I'll dunk you all the way under, and this cleansing will be a sign that you are acknowledging to God that you need and want God's forgiveness to be made right. And so, so many people flooded out to the Jordan Valley to be baptized by John that the religious leaders needed to figure out what was going on. In fact, what John was asking people to do was such a radically new thing. And so many people were responding to it that the religious leaders wanted to know, essentially, if John might actually be the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, the, the anointed one of God who was going to lead Israel into a whole new era of freedom and prosperity. Or they at least wanted to find out if John himself thought that he was the Messiah. And the inference that we can make from the way our scripture is written is that the leaders have just asked John, are you the Messiah? And that's where we pick it up. Verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the religious leaders of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Again, that's the Greek for Messiah. I am not the Messiah. It's important uh, as well for us to realize how adamant John is in his denial of being the Messiah. The John the evangelist is the John the writer of the, the gospel, um, the one who's telling the story about John the Baptist. He goes out of his way to write in Greek and to reflect in Greek what we think John the Baptist must have said. Basically, there are a lot easier and shorter ways to, to uh, write that John denied that he was the Messiah. 
But there's kind of a threefold denial here. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. So it's kind of a three-part denial. Similar, it would be similar to us saying, like, uh-uh, no way, no how, not me. The religious leaders are then confused. Why so many people are responding to John the Baptist? So they ask him a follow-up. Okay, well, then are you Elijah? Now, the reason they ask that is because the very last words of the Hebrew First Testament, the very last words from Malachi the prophet were that, there, that God will send Elijah when God is preparing Israel for the day of the Lord. The religious leaders here in our story this morning are thinking that, okay, well, if John's not the Messiah, if he's not the Christ, maybe he's Elijah. Come back. And we have to remember, there weren't any photographs in these times. There weren't any video clips from when Elijah had been around. There weren't even any pictures. There weren't even any written visual descriptions of what Elijah looked like. So how would they know if this was Elijah come back? So they ask him, are you Elijah? And of course, John says, nope, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. There was one, only one other person the religious leaders figured John could be. Again, centuries earlier, when Moses was still alive, God had said that one day a prophet like Moses would be sent to God's people. And so we hear again, okay, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? In that definitive article is important. Are you the prophet? And notice how John's answers are just getting shorter and shorter. He's getting tired, more tired of these people bothering him. And this time he just says, no, not me. It's, again, wise for us to take a moment and dwell on the humility that John the Baptist has shown here. He could easily have taken credit for being at least one of these three, the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet. Again, you know, there are, there are no paintings of these guys. There are no physical descriptions. He could have said, yeah, I'm the prophet. Even more significantly, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the way they tell the story is John the Baptist is identified as from Jesus as being the Elijah that was predicted. Because, according to the other three gospel writers, John the Baptist essentially fulfilled the role that Malachi had envisioned for the prophet Elijah that was to come. So the other three gospel writers even give credit to John the Baptist as being essentially Elijah. But in our telling, our gospel writer John reveals that John the Baptist himself didn't even see himself that way. But that doesn't mean that John 
doesn't think that he is important. And that's why we hear in those following verses, finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer. We've got to come back with some sort of response for the people who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the paths of the Lord. John himself believes that he's the voice first calling in that Hebrew First Testament passage that we read. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak softly, notice speak softly and tenderly to Jerusalem, but also make it clear there is now forgiveness. Thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival, make straight the road and smooth, a highway fit for our God. Fill in the valleys, level off the hills, all of that. Then God's bright glory will shine and everyone will see it. There's kind of an interesting point there. Uh, Notice the difference here between the voice and the vision. Speak, say these things to God's people and then they will see the glory of the Lord. And this is the, the exact same role that the writer of our letter understands is his role in writing about the things that he had witnessed. We also think it's John, the original gospel writer. But he says, from the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it all with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you, we're voicing it to you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly lit. This, the infinite life of God took shape before us. We saw it. We're now telling you about it so that you might have communion with God the Father and God the Son. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. The voice in our gospel reading, the voice is John's, but the word is Jesus. The message is Jesus. In linking last week's thoughts with this week's, I would say that there is a sense in which this whole celebration of Christmas with all of its various component parts is a voice. And the message it is voicing is Jesus. God is with us. And that's why I said last week, I said it again uh, earlier, is that I do believe that we can embrace the lights and the decorations and the special music and the parties and all of that, the gifts, as long as we keep them in perspective, as long as they enhance the message, which is Christ the Lord. If we aren't attentive, we can get so caught up in the momentum of this season that we mistake the voices as the most important part, not the message 
of the presence of Christ. But thankfully, we have this story and others like it, the story of people like John the Baptist, Baptist that anchor us in the message and not in the voices. We have these reminders of what the real story is and where we fit in. Those inbreakings of earthiness that keep our heads from floating above the clouds. Uh, Frederick Beekner puts it this way. He's a Presbyterian writer and pastor. He, he writes about sort of this whole, he's covering, he's talking a little bit about the whole prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and, and up into the part that we've been reading. Uh, he writes that there are two voices in this extraordinary opening text from John. The first of them is a voice chanting, a, a cantor's voice, a poet's voice. It's sung, it's, uh, not a, it's not said, it's a hymn, not a homily. Um, the second voice is insistent and over-earnest, a little nasal. It is a voice that wants to make sure, a voice that's trying hard to get everything straight. It is, above all, a down-to-earth voice. It keeps interrupting this troublesome confusion about just who the Messiah was. The second voice says, not John the Baptist, certainly. Whatever, we may, have, whatever may have been rumored in certain circuit, circles. It's a point that cannot be made too clearly or too emphatically. It was not the Baptist. It was Jesus. Right from the beginning, Jesus was without question who it was. It's good to have both voices, Beekner writes. The sound the second voice makes is a very human sound. And you need a very human sound to get your bearings in the midst of the first voice's unearthly music. It's also good to have interruptions. This is why I'm glad you've, you've kept Abbott in, in the house, because listen to this. I, this was already, I was already planning this, and I didn't know it was going to be here. It's also good to have interruptions. There should be interruptions in sermons, too, Beekner writes. The sound of a baby crying. A toilet being flushed. Something to remind us of just what this flesh is that the Word became. The Word that was with God. That was God. He writes about, you know, in, in, uh, in some circles that they... Uh, at communion, you have what's called the host. It's a, a, the wafer that you hold up when you break it um, as the, the, you talk about the be bread being broken. So he says, in fact, when the host is being raised before the altar to the tinkling of bells, it is very neat and right, if not his bounden duty for the janitor to walk through with the vacuum cleaner. The New Testament itself is written that way. The risen Christ, this is a post-resurrection Easter story. The risen Christ coming back at dawn to the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus, with the mystery of life and death upon him, standing there on the beach saying, do you have any fish? That's a story that we'll see at the end of John's Gospel. Have you any fish for Christ's sweet sake? Precisely that. The Christ and the chowder. 
The Messiah and the mackerel. The word and the flesh. Or, in our words for this morning, the voice and the message. It's good to have these reminders of what is voice and what is word. The church has a voice. And its message is that the presence of Christ is our salvation and hope. Thanks be to God.